Managing the expectations of high performers is never an easy task, but it can be done. This week's special guest on the Difference Maker podcast is Hall of Fame strength coach Al Vermeil. Al is one of the only strength coaches to have ever won a world championship in both the NBA and NFL and has worked with some of the world's most high-performing athletes such as Michael Jordan and Joe Montana and helped bring the legendary Chicago Bulls on an amazing run to win consistent world championships. In this week's episode, you will learn everything and anything from people management to understanding how to raise the level of performance levels of individuals and more importantly, to maintain the most authentic version of yourself. I'm telling you. This episode with Al is a very, very special one because it doesn't only touch on the strength and conditioning component, but more importantly covers the people component of it as well. So get ready to understand and learn what it takes to be able to manage the expectations of high performers and deliver results consistently. So sit back, relax, and get ready to innovate. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Difference Maker podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Calderoni. Today's guest is an absolute legend in the field of strength and conditioning, doing so much with what he has over the last however many years now. Without further ado, I'd love to introduce you guys to Al Vermeil. Al, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to, uh, to come speak to us. Wow, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity, Matt. Absolutely. So we want to dive right into this because you've just got You've got so much, so, so much interesting information that you can share across so many different spectrums. So I really want to start with this. I mean, you know, whenever I listen to you talking into any kind of different programs and whatnot, you always refer back to you being or having, I should say, this mindset of the high school strength coach that went on and, and evolved himself. Tell us a little bit about that mindset of this high school strength coach, what that means to you, how you kind of evolved it and moved forward. Well, my goal after I got a, well, I went to college to play football mm-hmm. and then to be a coach. And the only ambition I ever had in coaching was being a high school football coach, which I was. Four years, I was an assistant at Castle Robley High School in Orangevale, California, outside of Sacramento. And that's where I started to run the first off, we didn't call them strength and conditioning at that time. We call them off-season programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, then from there, I went to Cat, uh, to Moreau High School from 1973 through the fall football season of 78. And so it's those 10 years that really kind of shaped me. And I really enjoyed that age group. And I always just thought of myself as not a strength and conditioning coach. I always thought of myself as a high school football coach. See, and my experience is that I was a coach and I actually coached track and field also. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, the term strength and conditioning didn't really become popular until they started the, the, the strength and conditioning association when Boyd Epley and those other people uh, initially started it. So I just always thought of myself as a high school football coach and that basis really helped me because in high school, you take what you get and you have to develop. I mean, it's not like in college where you recruit them or a professional where you draft them or trade for them or whatever it may be. So that, that shaped me. And, and I really enjoyed that age group. And I, I'm, I'm not sure sometimes I grew up completely because <laughs> I just liked that age group and, and could re- identify and relate with what those kids were going through. And they, you know, they do it just for the pure pleasure of wanting to be uh, a football player and be part of something. So that yeah. always shaped me. 
And when I went on to professional sports, I never changed who I was. And maybe that's why I say I was a high school coach, because I never changed person at my personality. And I don't think you can do that. You know, some people would think, well, now you're going with a much more sophisticated group. And, but you have to be who you are. And my brother Dick always said that coaching is relative to whatever group you're dealing with. So that's that's why I've always felt that way. And I, you know, people want to uh, are very complimentary. But if I never achieved anything more than being a head high school coach at, and winning those championships at rural high school, I would have considered my career very successful and complete. And that still was the happiest part of my whole coaching career and the thing that I enjoyed the absolute most. And uh, I just can't express it any, any better than that. I love that. So it's really a mentality of know my roots, be absolutely stubborn in a positive way with them and keep that. And that's really what allowed you to do what you had to do. Um, I love that because I want to know a little bit about that personality because we do see this, right? We see this and not just with coaches, obviously, but it can be with athletes who jump up another level. It can be with, you know, corporate individuals who jump up the next level. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you know this, too, well, see this a lot yourself. I'm sure you do, Al, but for some reason, everybody tends to sometimes scrap what they've already been doing get rid of what they're good at and almost try and reinvent themselves. You actually went the exact opposite way and said, Hey, I'm not going to really change too much. Maybe I'll be obviously learning some, you know, different techniques and so on. That's evident, but you kept who you were on a personality basis. Why do you feel that this was something that really worked for you? Because I think you got to be true to yourself. Other words, yeah. you're a phony. Other words, you're in players will spot a phony, a corporate executive, if he, if he brings someone who is on a lower level up to him and you're the CEO and you all of a sudden see a change, you know, you made a mistake. You know, that's yeah. what happens. That's why so many coaches are fired. They go in and give a great interview, but when it comes to getting the job done, uh, you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's gotta be who you are. And, and in those years is where I, I learned my Olympic weightlifting techniques started I learned plyometrics. Uh, I read about it. A Fred Wilt article about 1975, and I think it was an athletic coach or one of those or scholastic coach. And then Don Chu was up at Cal State Hayward, which was right ab above Merle High School. So I, I learned that from him. I had come out of Kansas State where I was a grad assistant in 69 and 70, and they ran a good off-season program. And I learned they did some things what everybody calls floating sprints. We call ins and outs. And I learned how they established team discipline. And we, they also had a nice little 30 second station we would do. You know, everybody today is talking about all oh, deceleration training. Every, they got a name for everything you do today. Yeah. We just called it training. And I'll give me an example. And maybe this will relate to the corporate world. I figured out how many times they squatted how many times they caught a catch, uh, a clean, a power clean, a power snatch, push jerk or jerk. How many times they changed direction in the 32nd station. Uh, and when they we did our plows, they decelerated thousands of times in the off season, but we didn't call it that. That's just part of training. And I think the mistake people make, they start wanting to classify everything. And it's good right. to know what you're training, but if you're going through the right proper basics you're covering all that you know when we and i had 
Jimmy Schmidt, who was involved in Olympic weightlifting, come over. Then I had Russ Nip and my good friend Carl Miller came over. I, I brought these people in and we learned, I, I started to learn a lot about that. Uh, so those, those things formulated. And one of the things we did, I called Don Chu. I said, what after, I don't remember what particular weight exercises that we did, we mixed jumps with the lifts. I said to build fast strength. Well, what I was doing was complex training, but I didn't call it that. I just made sense to me. Right. And then the other thing we did, we would do one day a week, we would do speed squats where they try to get 60% of their body weight and do five squats within five seconds. And if they could do that, then we'd move up. And, you know, so we did a lot of things and, and you hear a lot of today about stability. Every mm -hmm. exercise requires stability. And all those stability exercises, because I'm friends of the Australian, where a lot of them came from, and I'm friends with a lot of PTs, were for people that had specific injuries. And I see these people, oh, God, I, 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 get, I puke when I hear the term. We're doing core training. <laughs> well, every time you jump, run, sprint, change the direction, you're doing core training. It's only if, if someone, I, I want to ask them, well, you're doing core training. What's their injury? What type of back pain do they have? Is it sitting, standing, and walking? I said, that's low load. That's a whole different set of, yeah, doing all that plank isn't going to help that. That's a high load exercise. So unless you know how to identify what core exercises they need, you're not really doing anything. And, you know, the interesting thing at Merle High School, I had one varsity player require knee surgery in six years, and I I wow. had one JV, maybe two JV. I know I had one for sure. One may have had surgery the year after I left in January of uh, 79. I don't remember, but may have had it. So uh, six to 700 kids in, in six years, we had I, I known two knee surgeries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think all the things people are doing today, uh, they want to complicate it. Yeah. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Jim Thorpe, in my opinion, relative to his time, relative to his period of competition versus the competition, was probably the greatest athlete of all really? time. Well, he, he won the Olympics and he won the pentathlon. He won the uh, decathlon. I figure what he, in an out an event, what he, you know, non event, what he finished. He was an unbelievable football player. He played professional baseball. So you have to relative, and I'm not saying athletes today are better. I'm not saying relative mm -hmm. to his time. Well, his body, the athletes have the same parts his body did today. Mm -hmm. uh, are, the, are there the parts of uh, Rayford Johnson? So if you look through the years, the training methods of 30 years ago, if they work then, they should work now if you knew what you're doing. The program I used at Moreau High School was the same program I used at the Bulls and, and the 49ers. I modified it. I learned more. Yep. What I did is I didn't change my concepts, but what I learned is what I had to adapt to specific athletes. I learned more the effect of particular jumps, of where I'd put the bar in Olympic lifts to get a particular effect, to also match their body size and technique. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned a great deal about sprint training and and overall training concepts from Charlie Francis, personal friend of mine, Carmelo Bosco. Mm -hmm. 
and then all the American, uh, you know, like John Garhammer, Mike Stone, Bill Kramer. And then I spent a lot of time with sports medicine people, which Don was excellent there, but like Rob Panarella, mm -hmm. uh, I got to know Mark Comerford late in my career and other people. So wow. I used a broad approach to try I, from sports scientists. When I was at the Bulls and 49ers, we always spent more money on bringing people in. When I was at the Bulls, we had an $18,000 a year equipment budget and $18,000 consulting budget. I spent the consulting budget all the time. I didn't spend the equipment. Once we got what we needed, mm -hmm. well, I could have added some more chrome to it, but that isn't going to make it any better. <laughs> it's not it's not the equipment it's the knowledge you acquire through experience and when you have those young athletes it you know I, I, it was it gave me an experience time to develop and i think yeah. and it and you develop who you are as a coach and you learn what you do wrong we hell we all make mistakes we make mm -hmm. mistakes in how we handle people besides yep. uh coaching so that's why i relish those periods and those kids were so enthusiastic and so intense and you know high school kids are there they want to please you mm -hmm. you know so yeah uh, I, that's it's huge with that too because i think what a lot of people don't realize is we all have a system of success and it's not like personality wise too right like you know your strong points and characteristic and so on that that allows you to get along with others and interact with others and hold your firm opinion with others and so on. And it's sticking to that and kind of like you mentioned, adapting where it's necessary to fit the environment sometimes. Um, but it's really understanding what your simple system is. And that's something that I think is huge that a lot of not just strength coaches, but athletes even lose sometimes or, or high performers in general when they're trying to accomplish something. They think complexity is what equals sophistication when in reality, it's a complete opposite, right? Like something too complex, you can't execute it sometimes because just you can't get too many people on board. Well, and you get, you get paralysis through, paralysis through analysis. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's even like you're talking about corporate people. You'll see yep. corporations have a great product and do something well, and they'll all of a sudden change it and screw it up. You know, it's like these corporate execs. If, if you inherit a, if you were at inherit a, a great corporation, I'm familiar with Ford Motor Company. Mm -hmm. Well, if you knew the philosophy of the company, don't go screw it up. You modernize right. it. You realize the mistakes they made. Henry Ford kept the Model T too long. He wouldn't. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't. But once he went in advanced, then he went to the the Ford V8, which was a huge seller. So I, I think you have to understand the roots. Mm -hmm. of the organization you're with mm -hmm. and if there's something to build on there you do now when i went to Murrow high school they had never won more than three games so right. there was a lot there wasn't much to build on they didn't have any traditions um so you and you and you as a strength and conditioning coach you have to realize it's not about you it's about the organization you're with and the people you're around and the athletes you coach you're there to serve them it's not about your ego and putting your putting on twitter or, or some other internet site that you you develop this guy i'm the greatest you know you didn't develop anyone the people that are really great had the right mom and dad yeah that's starts not only physically but emotionally and i think this weekend 
with Phil Mickelson. Here's a guy that changed his whole body, changed how he approached life, had great determination, great competitor. Well, he not only got the physical talents from his parents, he got, they somehow created an emotional environment that allowed him to excel and become so determined that he was going to fight the aging process and not give up and make major changes. Mm -hmm. Now that, you know, so I think people have to recognize that. And I, I know I, there was someone on the internet that was pumping up this person they work with in the NFL <laughs> and he got traded to a team that I was by live by. Mm -hmm. I think he played there one or two years and then he was out of the league. Right. You know, you know, it's, yep. it's, all about genetics. And the biggest thing is when you get someone that's got it, the first rule is don't screw them up. And the better they are, I found the simpler to train. You just have to work when they've got it. They don't need more. They need a little less because they're, they're putting out such a greater amount of generating much more force and power that they're stressing their body more than someone who can't. So you just got to be careful of, of that factor. And Charlie Francis well, really put me on. Yeah. That. I was going to say, let's talk about that for a sec. Cause I think that's very interesting, not only from a training standpoint, but also like dealing with different personalities. Cause I want to get into that in a little bit too, but you just said something that really resonates. Like don't screw someone up when they, when they've got it right. And got that gene, if you will. So What's your, what's your strategy with that? Al? Let's pretend we've got, you know, someone that you identify as. Oh, I'll it. tell you, I can tell you exactly. I had Horace Graham. Tell me. And I got a tremendous amount of credit for Horace and I didn't deserve it. Horace deserved it. <laughs> Horace Graham. If you can picture having a, uh, like a 10 ounce drink okay. or a 16 ounce drink. And you know how big the rim is, the opening is right. on that that's the nervous system and the liquid inside represented the strength. Well, his liquid, which was the strength needed to be filled up, but if you filled it up and dumped it because it come out very fast, he had it. So the only thing you had to do is not waste your time doing what I call isolated bodybuilding and all that crap. <laughs> we went in, we went in and did, you know, basically we did snatch pulls, clean pulls, power snatches, power cleans, push, press, push jerk, split jerks. That's what we did with, and he'd go do some curls. Oh, we did some benches because they like to bench. <laughs> All you had to do is build up the maximal strength and, and, and put explosive strength in there. He already was elastic. And yep. that's the mistake. Most of these people I get, well, what should we do with, we're in the NBA, you know, how many, how much plyometrics? I said, by the time they get in the NBA, they have had at least through high school and college eight years. Well, maybe they don't finish college now, but let's say <laughs> they've, they've been playing basketball all life. They've had at least an average of six months of plyometrics every year. And that's why they've got tendonitis because they didn't do the one foundation thing of strength and strength and power training. They did it just mm -hmm. played basketball. So, you know, we didn't, we only did that for specific people that I thought we may be able to influence it. Mm -hmm. but uh you know and the so other how thing, did you sorry how did you identify that then like being able to influence well that? i developed uh in when i was with the 49ers don chu and i started to develop a, a timing device because i saw the antiquated way they were doing it in the nba nfl at that time 
And it, when I left the 49ers, started, Don and I started a business. And then when I left and went to Chicago and sold the other part of the business back to Don, or I can't remember how we did it. Anyway, I, I finished the timing device. And I had seen where Carmelo and Bosco, I took Carmelo's stuff. And we, it, I could measure, you know, I, I squat jump, counter movement jump, repeat jump, step close. So you started looking at the, what they now call bounce or, or stiffness. And when Don and I were working together, we would have, uh, we would measure, we'd have athletes step off an 18 inch box, land, jump, and we'd get their contact time and divide it into height. We just didn't put it. This was 1981. We didn't put a name to it. Wow. We did that. Wow. Now they call it. I, and this guy in Australia, I think it was young, very smartly gave it a name called the reactive strength index. I just <laughs> knew, I just knew if that number was high, you had it. You had that stiffness, mm -hmm. what they call now, and reactivity that comes from that lower leg and Achilles and all that. And so, you know, it was easy to do. And it wasn't hard to, I didn't need a timing device to identify horse having that. Right. <laughs> he just had Absolutely. But we, we did have that. So I used Carmelo's protocols and that's what we did. And we had one athlete I worked with, really worked hard, tried to work on that to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, that's something you have to develop at a little earlier age, you can, mm -hmm. you can take some people and help, but with the thing people don't realize and whether it be NFL, NBA, any type of season that's lengthy and combative, especially NBA was very physical then much more, yep. you know, it's strength. And there's it, 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 you'll get an athlete that'll say, well, I don't, I can run around the world in 15 seconds, jump out of the gym. Well, he, they may, or he, she may be able to do that because their tendon leg of dominated. They have that pop, but if you don't have the strength to endure the season and you continue to rely on that, you're going to break down. You're going to, you have a strength deficit. So we wanted to make sure they had maximal strength because yeah. that's what took them through the season. And we had, I'm trying to think, uh, uh, there was we, Billy Cartwright had knee surgery and he came with that a problem and he, he worked hard and packs, but outside that, we didn't have a lot of knees. We didn't have a, a lot of knee surgeries. So we worked on the, you know, on that and that, and that, and people say, well, that's too simplistic. You're not doing this. What about velocity training? Uh, velocity training, but to me is, if you're lifting Olympic weights, doing Olympic lifts, that's velocity. If you're yep. sprinting, that's velocity. If you're jumping, it's velocity. I, you know, right. I, I think and, you some, know, it's sorry. Let say, me finish it's this. Very in, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It's some, people want to identify and write all these articles and oh my God, Jesus. They, 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 and that's, over, that's overcomplicated. Yeah. And that it, like when we look at it with all of the individuals we work with and we see, people don't realize this is just a matter of getting very, very clear in what you have to do. Yes. And it's not doing 10 million different things, you know, one time each, it's doing literally one to maybe four things really, really well, millions of times over and over again. And that's how you get that repetition, right? Like I can't, and Al, you've seen this, like 
how many times I've seen somebody just change up their repetition on a daily basis, not just in the weight room, but I mean in, in anything to build skill because they think that's how they're going to get the most output, right? And it's like, in reality, it's, it's a matter of constantly tracing over the same line. Like what happens on a piece of paper when you go over that one line over and over and over and over yeah. again, it gets darker, right? Right. So it's, it's no different in this sense. It doesn't matter if it's training or dealing with, you know, individuals, it's, it's understanding what your system is, keeping simple in your approach and being self-aware, right? And I feel like now with a lot of the stuff going on and there's a lot of tech advancements and so on, but I really feel like sometimes people are losing that ability to sometimes just see clearly and to reflect on what they've been doing. And that's yes. where we get these, like you're saying, the articles, the overcomplication, the scoring systems, this or that, like know the metrics that bring you the most return and hit them. Right. It, and it's, it's doing it over and over again. Well, it's, that's why I said the great, the, the guys that had it were easy. I knew exactly what to do and they had never mm -hmm. done it. See, the other reason we did so much straight, they had never been exposed to it. So I looked at what's the one thing they haven't been exposed to. What's the one thing that they're going to have a significant impact on their longevity and on their performance. I'm not saying you're going to make someone super, but they can repeat the performance consistently game in and game out from a physical standpoint. And that's what, what you got to do. And there's, you know, basically you break it down. What kind of shape there, if they're terrible shape, work capacity, maximal strength, I break down explosive strength into what they can Olympic lift, how far they can throw a medicine ball. Actually a standing long jump is just explosive strength or, mm -hmm. or, or counter movement. There's some elasticity and then you have reactive strength and then you have speed and it's breaking that down in the doses. And I have a little system I call the order of development pyramid. And people say, well, how do you individualize the program? I said, well, if they're not strong enough, that's your main thought, but you keep a thread of everything else in there. So mm -hmm. when you go from maximal strength to Olympic lifting, now you've done some of that but you also have some speed and some jump work in there. So as you progress and you go, and that becomes more something you want to uh, have a more dominant role or higher volume, you reduce volume in one and increase the volume in the other, you won't get sore. That's Charlie Francis' theory. And when I was a high school coach at Moreau and at Castle Robley, of course, in the winter, all because there would rain in Northern California, all we could do is jumps. And then once I learned about, um, excuse me, it's lifts, and once I learned about the jumps, then we did the short jumps up on the wrestling mat. Then we had spring football for 20 days where we got our speed work in. And then in the summer, I put more emphasis on speed and, uh, on, and reduced the amount of lifting a little bit. And then we did some jumping. And then we had our own conditioning circuit, like I mentioned earlier. But it's, it's, it's like making, it's, it's having a blender. And you're making a smoothie. Mm -hmm. If you put a lot of protein in, you're going to get a lot more protein. If you don't need as much protein, and you want more carbs, you put carbs. If you want, you know, it's, it's, it, I've, I have a slide where I just have a blender with the, what I call the component or training qualities. And it's how you mix them together. But it's not, not a, you know, some, I don't know. I, I've read the books and there's some great people, very smarter than I'm right, write these books on, on periodization and, and the time you get done, you can't remember what they said to start this thing so damn long. And, you know, and I, my experience comes from football. 
And I think the greatest advantage I had was being a football coach. And I still consider myself a football coach. And if they ever go back and play the game the old way where they can't hold them, have to block with their hat and shoulders, I could go back and coach because I know how to teach that. But my point <laughs> being is football, you have an order. Other words, if you're putting in a play, I, we ran the Houston split back beer. It's an option. So we would put the dive that went between the guard and tackle. And we would read the, the first man on or outside the tackle, whether we give the ball. So that was called the inside veer. The next play would be the counter to that, where we'd fake that, pivot back the other side, and the other halfback would take a step towards the direction of the, everybody thought we we're running the inside veer and cut back up between the guard center gap on the opposite. Then we put the outside veer, which was a, a, a gap wider between the tackle and in. Everything had our defense, everything had a progression, how we taught tackling. I taught tackling. The first thing I did is put people in the perfect position. This is how you want to end up. This is your, like in golf, they'd call it impact, the moment of truth, and tackling, the moment of truth is impact. Then I'd step on a yard back and make a tackle, so forth. So everything had to be organized. You couldn't be grab bagging. You know, well, let's put this play in today. Hey, let's take this offensive play from Joe Schmatz over here. Everything was a system. And that's how the, that thinking is how I evolved the system of training. And I made mistakes. You know, I fool with things. You know, you, you know you're a young coach. Oh, this has got to be better, this system and, and all that. But it's just it all comes back. It all comes back to knowing what you do. And I find coaches that are always searching really don't have a philosophy, don't really understand training and don't know what they're doing. They mean well. You know, one time a young man came in and spent a couple of days with us and then he went someplace else and a month or two months later, he sent me his program. His program would have taken all day because he had the three people we visited. He had all three programs. <laughs> and it was nice. Young man. But um, I, I just think and, and I also comes from my background and my dad was a machinist, auto mechanic, body and fender. He's in the knoxville sprint car racing hall of fame he worked on high level racing engines so everything had it when you rebuilt an engine there was a process when i worked on cars for him whether it was doing a brake job or a tune-up everything had a, a a certain process and what coaches first have to do is figure out what that process is i love that so Let's go into this then for a second, because we're going to talk about a process, not so much physiologically, but let's talk about it mentally, emotionally with personality. You've been into so many different high performing teams. Um, and I also want to talk about here, the firefighters and police, because I know that you did a bit of work with them too. Mm -hmm. um, let's start with the sports teams first, then we'll kind of adapt it to that. You got to see so many different personalities out you were able to deal with, you know, directly or indirectly guys like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, so on, and, and so many different amazing football players as well. What was your system or process of getting guys like that to buy in when we know that some of them had their own personal trainers who had their own ideologies and so on, but you were able to grasp them. What did you do? Well, first of all, I never trained Michael, so I didn't do a very good job there. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, my, Michael was the first guy that I know of that had a personal trainer. And, but I just, I basically just 
was me. I don't know how else to explain it. People want to think I waved some magic wand. We explained to them what we wanted to do. And they recognized they knew I knew what I was doing. And gradually guys bought in. The first guy to really buy in in the bulls was Dave Corzine. I owe a great deep, deep, uh, a great amount to because he was the first one to buy in. Oakley bought in when Charles was with us, then John Paxson. And when Billy Cartwright came, by the time Cartwright came, Horace was a rookie or so, or second year. Horace really wanted to train. So the, he bought, Horace bought in. He just came in and said, I need to train. And then uh, Scotty came in after he'd had his back surgery uh, and worked really hard. But when Cartwright came, Corzine said, this is, Al knows what he's doing. This is good. So it became kind of a, a word of mouth, so to mm -hmm. speak. And, you know, but I didn't have any magic wand. Again, I never changed who I was. Now, some guys didn't, but I kept mm -hmm. talking to them. I didn't ignore them. Right. I wanted to have that communication. I'll give you an example. Before I'm sorry, so, so, sorry some mean, guys didn't, yeah, you're saying but, didn't train? Okay. Uh, yeah, there, but as we went through the process more and more by the summer of 1990, when we were going to, that was, you see, 90, we won it in 91. So it was the summer, each summer we got more and more guys. Now they couldn't pay them to be there. The league wouldn't allow that and all that. Mm -hmm. By the summer of 1990, eight guys averaged, what did I figure it out? 55 workouts, something like that. So right. we finished in the first week of June. So if you figure five days a week, you know, uh, so that's like 10 weeks, almost 11 weeks of training. That's almost the whole summer. And, and we'd have had more, but Cartwright and Paxson both had surgery. Okay. But so what, I, what I'm saying is it took time and the players saw the results and the, and the ownership and general manager really encouraged it. But like when we got uh, Ron Harper, I went up to him and I said, Ron, now you've been in the league and been successful without Al Vermeil. If we can help you, I, we were, we want to. And he did, he worked, he came in right away and started working out. Ron was a good guy. And he realized that he needed to work on some things and he would come back actually at night and work out during the season. Interesting. And he'd work out with my assistant, Eric Killam. He did a great job for me. And that was how I worked with him. When we got Dennis Rodman, I said the same thing. And Dennis didn't buy And he did his own thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. I said, you'd played. Uh, by that time, Dennis had been in the league. I don't know how many years. And, right. I, you, know, you know, I said, so you, you've got to approach it with some, you know, you can't walk in there. I'm the bad, you know, man, I made this guy and stick your chest out and roll up your mm -hmm. sleeves and all that crap. Uh, so that's one of the ways. The other thing I made a little graft that showed the life expectancy of a male. And at that time it was 76 years old. And I said, the average playing career in the NBA is four years. So I took that timeline and had a little, I, I didn't have PowerPoint and the fancy things at that time. I took word mm -hmm. and I, I made a very bold line, let's say from 22 to 26. I said, that's the length of your career. But here's how you can link. I said, and here's the average salary. Now, what's it worth to you 
to continue to play. Because when you're done playing, you're not going to go for a job and say, what can you do? Well, I'm a power forward. Well, we don't, um, you know, I can't hire you. <laughs> yeah, I live in Cincinnati, so Procter Gamble's big. Well, uh, they don't need any power forwards. So the, the <laughs> thing people don't realize that Phil Mickelson's an anomaly, but has a professional athlete, when your your career is short and when you're over, the, probably the, for many of them, that's the highlight of your life. You're never going to excel at anything else like you did there because you're not. First of all, you're not been trained to have the capabilities. You've lived in a world where everybody's taking care of you today. They get you up to go to breakfast. They get you up, to go to class. They do this, do that. So that's how one of the ways I approached it. And it made sense to them. And I gave that to other coaches. That's very so, interesting. And then from say, that, I, was... didn't, I didn't say I was going to make you better, but how important it is you to play an extra year. I said, I, I think you can help extend your career. Very interesting. So if you want to say it, you just really got in tune with what made what, what sorry, with what mattered to these guys and showed them how you felt you could potentially help them re increase that. In and short, they were, right? they were, you don't win six championships and have the runs that they did at, at either organizations. They had great pride in themselves. They wanted to work. It wasn't Al Vermeil being in there, given the, uh, one of my great high school motivational pregame talks. They right. wanted to do it. They wanted to win. The day after we lost to Detroit, when the series Michael got hurt, the day after on that Monday, Horace and Scotty were in training. I hadn't even they showed up. <laughs> and it was great because the owner and general manager were there for a, a big uh, staff meeting. Made me, you know, you know oh, look at how well I didn't do it. Hell, they wanted to. Scotty wanted to work. Now, here's this great story about Scotty. Yeah. Later in his career, started working, you know, private trainers and all that. Uh, during the lockout, the first lockout, and I forget what year that was. Might have been that was the year Michael retired. I believe it was ninety three, ninety four. I can't remember whenever they had the first lockout. Well, then he would train during the season with us, and off and on. Well, uh, his last year with the Bulls, the, the year before we won the championship in. Uh, 97 he had to have surgery and he waited a while to have surgery and then he, they we were at a meeting and uh, jimmy stack the assistant gm we were talking about rehab and they said aren't you going to say anything i said no they're going to send him to someone else i said i just this time i want to sit back and wait i said you'll You'll come back and contact me. Sure as hell, they went on the West Coast road trip. And Phil says, hey, Scotty's got to get, he's having a hard time playing. So then Scotty came back and started training with me so he could get ready to play. He was doing all the foo-foo stuff, but not <laughs> training. And he knew it. He, Scotty was a smart guy. Scotty's a good guy. Unfortunately, he just lost his son about three right. weeks ago. But he was a good guy. All of them are good guys. Stacy, Will Purdue, there's another guy. Worked his tail end off. Just smart kid. He really worked hard. You know, Johnny Paxson, BJ, Tony, uh, Stacy. Uh, we had Scott Williams. And then we got, uh, I mentioned Tony. Then we got Steve Kerr, Luke, Billy Willington. Wow. And then we had, uh, oh, I'm John Olson, Judd Bushler. All those group of guys, you know, 
worked hard. In the last couple of years, Phil made in-season training mandatory for everybody Brilliant. but. Everybody but. <laughs> <laughs> everybody but the one. But I understood Phil's position. That's not That wasn't wrong. I'm not criticizing yeah. him. Don't, and anybody listen, don't take that. You don't win all those championships he won just on talent. You know? Right. You, you got to organize that talent and you got to uh, manage that talent. And he had great assistant coaches. He had Jimmy Clemens. Uh, and we had the great Tex winner, the late Tex, Johnny Buck. And, and then we had, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a disservice, Jimmy Rogers. And there was another coach that was really a good coach. Frank Hamlin, he was his name, but we had some great coaches and they, and they really did a great job with the players and, and so forth. And Jerry Krause did a wonderful job. So people want to criticize Jerry and it really makes me angry. Mm -hmm. Someone did that publicly and I really didn't like that. I didn't like that in the first day, uh, last day. I thought that was totally inappropriate and wrong. You're talking in the last dance there? Yeah, that was classless. Interesting. Period. So what side, what side and of Jerry? I'm going to tell you, let that? me finish my story. Yeah. You look at the first championship, who, who brought John Paxson in? Who drafted Horace? Who drafted Scotty? Who traded for Bill Cartwright? Who brought in Scotty? Uh, who, who uh, drafted BJ Armstrong, Stacey King, Jerry Krause? Who brought Bobby Hansen in? Truck, Trent Tucker and Livingston, the first championship, Jerry Krause, second championship. Who got Luke Longley? Tony Kukoc, Steve Kerr, Bill Winnington, uh, Ron Harper, uh, Dennis, Jerry Krause. Did he make some mistakes? Yeah, he's human. All of us do. Hell, I made mistakes. More than mm -hmm. I like to think about. And Jerry Reinstorf was a great owner. Those two guys were great to work for. And I get tired of people running. If they think they can do so much better, then go get a team and prove me you can do it. Put up or shut up. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just tired of listening to that crap. You know, if you think you could, it'd be like me saying, well, I, you know, you know, I can do this better than go do it. 100%. You know, I just, and I also don't think you ever speak ill of the, of those who have passed away. Yep. I, I just, yep. you, you, you can't continue to beat a dead horse. I just, Right. I'm Without sorry. Having I, didn't, I didn't mean to go off like that, but it, it's very frustrating for me to people not the press and everybody not recognize. You know, did Jerry well, have it is idiosyncrasy? We all do. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and I think this is why it's important, right? Like people got to realize too that there's so many different viewpoints on things and we know it too, right? We know there's a different viewpoint from within, from external, from however you want to look at it, even from just the head coaches to the trainers, to the players, to whomever, right? Medical stuff, whatever you want to call it. Everybody has an opinion and not being able to allow somebody who obviously, like we said, has passed away in that sense to, to defend themselves. That's tough. It's really, really tough. Well, just look at right? the results. So, the, the things I stated rap are facts. Yep. They're, they're not here. They're not conjecture. They're not opinion. He brought Phil Jackson. He brought that coaching staff in. Mm -hmm. Problem. Jerry's 
demeanor wasn't always a, uh, helped them in a positive way for whatever reason. But I knew him. Well, I spent a lot of hours with him. He brought me in from right. better or worse. So yep. I, I just, uh, I just think that people have to recognize. Yes. Did we have Michael Jordan? Absolutely. We had the ultimate weapon. No question. Michael, great player. I nothing but respect for him. He'd walked in the training room one day. I'll never forget. There was some rookie laying there. So I played X. Let's say he played, I played eight years in this league. What the hell are you doing laying in here? <laughs> So and I respect Michael greatly. I, I just think I'm not, and I'm just speaking generally, not of one thing that right. Jerry got too much negative criticism and they didn't, uh, and didn't get the re- credit he should. Finally, he got in the basketball hall of fame. Unfortunately, it was after he passed away, but anyway, I'm, I don't mean to rant, but it, that was, that, that's very important to me. Uh, I, well, I, I think it's, it's important. We look at that too because it's you're not giving people the whole picture because this is I actually wanted to get right into this after this is an interesting topic but like you know let's talk about effectiveness for a second right the effectiveness of a strength coach or a coach in general could be a leader you know and you've got obviously owners and such that are above you in that sense on the on the table of financial hierarchy and so on but you need to carry out your principles and do what you got to do this is where it's very interesting because my question was going to be to you, have you ever had the difficult coaches or, or GMs or owners, <laughs> right? And, and what's your strategy? Uh, well, I always, uh, when I was a high school coach, I was the ultimate ruler. I, okay. even, even the, because I, 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 I had a theory, never take a job you can't win. You know, I, I wasn't going to take a job where I couldn't go in there and do it exactly the way I want to do it without any interference as I had a high school football coach. I walked out of an interview once I, uh, and it was a school I used to compete against in track and field as an athlete. I didn't take another job because they wanted me to teach in the classroom, but I found the perfect job at Merle high school. Brother Lawrence hired me now father, uh, got a uh, father young, but, uh, and he allowed me to be me. When I went to 49ers, obviously I recognized, you know, strength. Not every team had a strength and conditioning coach at that time. I was the first one for the 49ers, and it was in education. You know, they weren't all going to have to come in and work out, and it was a gradual progress progression. Uh, you know, and the owners and Bill were great. Uh, Mr. DeBartle, I'll uh, give you a quick story. They had, mm-hmm. uh, in 1990, uh, let's see, 19, in the season of 78, they uh, brought in all this hydrogen stuff. And the players yeah. hated it. They had a circuit they had to do on it. And it was, they hated it. So, Sorry, gonna, can you tell us what the hydrogen is? Well, it was basically, you know what shock absorber is on a yep. car? It's hydraulic. Yep. Well, you had a little knob that you could adjust the tension. So all the all the all the equipment that you have today are a lot of the machines. They were just using a like a shock absorber for resistance. And you set the pressure. You'd turn a knob if I remember correctly. You may have not. I can't remember. Well, it was like a shock absorber. I recognized it right away because I had worked for my father and changed shocks on a car. And the players hated it, and I wanted to get rid of it because I wanted 
free Olympic lifting and so forth and so on. Free weights. So uh, Bill brings in Mr. Labaro, Eddie, and his father. And I'm trying to convince them why we need to. They just spent $17,000, which was a lot of money in 1979. You know, right. if, with inflation, I don't know what it'd be today. And I wanted to get rid of all this stuff. And so I'm in the middle of talking. And the hydrogen guy must have gotten wind of this for somehow shows up that day. Now, here I am. I've gone three months before, two months before being a high school coach. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to the owner and the head coach and basically the, the guy that ran everything at the 49ers, Coach Walsh. And this guy walks in. And he starts saying, oh, you can't get rid of this stuff. I grabbed him by the shirt, said, get your, I took him out, said, get your ass out of here and don't come back. Then walked back in and <laughs> talked to Mr. Lombardo. And about three hours later, Bill said, you did a great job. Get whatever you want. Wow. And that's, that's an honest to God, true story. So it was an interesting experience, uh, you know, pro football. And, and that I was only, when I took the job, I just turned 34. So there were players as old as I was. And, it, you know, it, it was interesting. Uh, there was a, a player I really liked. His name was Cedric Hardman. Mm -hmm. And he had watched me teach the Olympic lifts to some of the guys. And this is what I talk about players talking to players. Right. He said, uh, hey, I forget the player. Told me this is good stuff. Teach me this Olympic lifting. It took me one day. <laughs> the guy was unbelievable. And he had a bravado, you know, kind of carried himself with that bravado. I'm, I'm using his voice. Mm -hmm. said, he was really a good guy. I got along great. He'd come <laughs> back. He'd come back at night, and I, I my theory was, I'm going to be there if you're going to train. If you come back at six o'clock at night, seven, I'm there. I did that with the Bulls. Corzine would call up. I'm going to be there at ten. Call up. I'll be there at two. Maybe he'd, he'd call, he'd, he'd call me, he'd be at seven or Horace would show up later. Horace would make a work, miss a workout. He'd want to come in on Sunday or something. But anyway, right. Sid would come in and he'd played with Joe Green and he would do squats. He'd have 300 pounds and he'd sit on the bottom of it. And he's, he's he was about six, three, six, four, two, forty-five chiseled. Wow. And he'd be sitting down there at the bottom of squats and Joe told me, this is what's important, that depth, get down in there, and, you know. He was just, you know, I enjoyed it. And I got to know him on a one-on-one -on -one <laughs> basis. And then one day he came in after practice. He said, Al, I got to get a workout. I got to, he cleaned, power cleaned and push pressed 300 pounds. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I mean, did I make him do it? No. Did I, was it my off season program that gave him that quality? He had the quality. So I'll never forget that. He, I really enjoyed him. And, uh, we so you you adapt and one of the things talking about Cedric, they had me test pull-ups. Well, I had my hand out in front of his leg so he wouldn't swing him, and he got upset with me in front of the other players. Okay. You know, and I mean, I tell you, this is within two months of coming from high school to this. So right. I kind of was befuddled. I didn't know what to do. He came in later and apologized to me, and we got along great. Never had, you know. I, and I, even the players that didn't work out with me, I never lost communication. We we drafted a young man from, an, uh, I won't say, oh, I don't want to, and 
Yep. He, he brings a guy into the weight room one day at the 49 He's doing his own workout. And he's explaining to the guy, someone's power stanching or doing Olympic lifts or whatever, how great that is for him. Yet he's over benching. <laughs> he, didn't last long. he didn't last too long. Oh, so, but and yeah, I had coaches that didn't believe in it. Uh, not, not in football so much, but you know, it, it, you, you had to educate them. And then when I went to the bulls, I, the one thing I said, I want to be hired by the owner because I worked for the bull and white Sox for a while. I said, everybody else yeah. comes and goes smartest thing I ever did, but I would go talk to the owner. <laughs> I would send Jerry Krause and, and Jerry Reinsdorf. Hey, uh, this this guy went from this test to this and show him improvement and so I, I i communicated with him and i i didn't walk in there and like oh you know like was intimidated because of who they were the only person that ever really intimidated me was my father i mean you know he you didn't screw with him he was supplied he had a, <laughs> 19, he had a 19 and a half inch neck and about a, almost a size eight head <laughs> he was a big man and you know relative to his time and he had a big thick beard he'd, he'd look at you and you sit at the table if you said something you shouldn't have, he said be quiet i'll give you the back of my hand and he, I <laughs> that's him. real fear <laughs> yeah well I, but it was respect and we were very absolutely close. but you knew he didn't you know so i had coaches and you just try to educate them you know mm -hmm. you you try to explain to what them what you're doing uh, I had trainers, yes. And I think in understanding the training profession, you had to understand there were the players' confidant before strength right. coaching. They were the go-to guy. And right. my personality is such that I just didn't talk to the players about strength and conditioning. Uh, I can remember a player walking through the weight room one day and saying, I said, nice, nice, game, nice defense last night. And he said, thanks. I didn't know anybody noticed. So in other words, he wow. appreciated it. And they'd come in there, and here's the big mistake. People think, well, I'm dealing with these sophisticated athletes. Oh, I've got, you know, they're human beings. You don't think yep. they have doubts? You Watch the PGA Tour. You have a great player, and all of a sudden, they're not playing as good anymore for a year or two. They lose their confidence. They can't putt. They're human beings. And, yep. and, and everybody sees when they don't do well. They've got... Fan, millions of people watching on TV, thousands in a game. You got the newspaper. You've got interviews. I mean, how would corporate executives like every day have the news media in there? Oh, you know, hey, the mm -hmm. head of X Corporation, you blew that deal. You just caught your company ten million dollars. <laughs> nice job. Well, you don't see that. It may be in a paper, yeah. but so it's it's a different sense of pressure, and they recognize that. When they can't play anymore, they're not needed. It's not like yep. your children. You're going to love them no matter what. Hey, mm -hmm. it's been it's been nice knowing you. We love, love you. We want to be associated with you. But your time has come. We need someone else to do the job. Yep. It's, it's a quick turnaround. It's a cruel world. So mm -hmm. I just, again, I think that's the key. I had the players over to our house for for dinner i took them to restaurants we had the vsf the vermeil sports and fitness golf open and you've never seen a ball sliced as much as you've seen it when you see a seven foot guy 
The first hole at the Marriott Golf Course was at Dog Leg 325 left. Then there was the par three on the right-hand side. Then there was the Des Plaines River. I saw a guy hit it over all that to the far bank on a slice. I never seen anybody slice a golf ball like that in my. But you know, again, they're in your house or a restaurant. You're being real with them. Yep. And I, There's a human element. Well, the thing is, you can't. You're not coaching an athlete. You're coaching a human being. You're coaching a person. Yep. And if they don't trust you, and my brother Dick talks a lot, I think that's the thing. I think they trusted me. Yeah. If they don't it's trust. Funny. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's 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 funny you say that because I was literally just having a conversation before this with an athlete that we work with, and we're doing a lot of work with him on leadership right now. And I said, you know, dude, like, tell me something. What brand are you wearing? And he goes, well, I'm wearing Nike. I said, do you like that brand? He goes, yeah, I love this brand. I said, tell me why you love that brand. And he told me why he loved that brand. He named off different elements. I said, dude, what makes you think that being a leader is any different than being a brand? You trust the brand. You buy into the brand. You've got to repeat the same message over and over again with patience and consistency. That's a leader. And more importantly, if you're just for one person, it's never going to work out. You got to be able to show everybody that you can be a part of them. And it's treating them that way like a human being. And it's something that, you know, in my line of work that we have to follow, unfortunately, or fortunately, because we get to serve the athlete or the individual, but usually it comes from a place where, you know, they've been through that experience where maybe they haven't been treated as a, as a human being as much as they need to. And then before they know it, they're just these hardwired perform, 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 perform. But the moment that you take that performance environment away from them, it scares the shit out of them. Look at coronavirus, right? Like that was a really big one that I don't think a lot of people paid enough attention to with the athlete on sometimes where they realized a lot of people say identity and talk about identity and identity and identity. But my rant in this part, Al, is, you know, people don't even know what that word means anymore sometimes, I, yeah, you know, like I, what <laughs> with, with being an athlete, right? Like what, you're just an NBA player. You're, be you're better than that. That's part of, that's part of your life. That's not your entire life. That's not and giving it that respect. You is are. Huge. Right. Yeah. It's huge. You know, I was, I was saying, and you'd appreciate this. Have you ever seen out Tom versus time on Facebook? That series of Tom Brady? No, I don't do Facebook. So I don't know. Okay. You don't do Facebook. Well, you've got to find a way to do Facebook for let's say four hours. Okay. And this was an amazing show because it showed into the life of Tom, but there was something that a lot of people, you know, didn't pick up on. It's kind of like the last dance. Everybody picked up on the hardcore and the working, 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 but nobody picked up on the idea that Tom Brady had a certain amount of respect for the game of football and also looked at it in a different way where he understood that his family had a certain respect for him and it allowed him to go hard between the hours of 7 a.m. till 2 p.m. And then guess what? He was done. He had balance, right? So it's like, understanding that it's all about prioritizing that and catering to the human being when it comes to this whole thing on buy-in everybody's talking about buy-in now buy-in buy-in and yes it's important but you know i've got a lot of principles that i've written down here from listening to you speak it sounds like it all comes back to you a serving the human being and really wanting to do that and b making sure that you're pretty much genuine to everyone really not that hard no it's a, it, it, it's it's just not hard but you're being yourself and the problem right. is some people shouldn't be in charge of people because that's not their skill set. Yep. In other words, there are coaches that are smarter than I am. I can write better programs probably than I can. I have a more 
physiological understanding of this approach and that approach and all that. But I had a strong passion and I have an ability to communicate with people. And I always went in the weight room. It was not always fourth and one. Jeez, I see the modern strength coach walks in there every day like, hey, why can't you have a smile on your face? Well, I enjoyed what I did. Absolutely. It was fun. Uh, and the other thing is, as a strength coach, they've already got enough stress from everybody else. Don't you make it that way? Now, yes. if you're talking about uh, discipline and things like that, that's a different deal. But you've got to go in and, and, and really sincerely enjoy. And there's too many, and I should, that's always, that's a terrible word, too many. I think <laughs> some coaches, strength, want to be strength coaches, are our leaders. Let's take that out. Let's take, I don't care if it's court leaders. They right. really don't have the career path to develop that. For example, if you're a coach, well, I've, I'm an exercise science major. Well, that's great. Have you ever played mm -hmm. sports? Have you been a captain of a team? Have you had to lead a group? Have you had to coach mm -hmm. a large group? I see young strength coaches. They can't handle groups. They don't know how to organize it so they can coach everybody. And it's uh, one of the things I learned from Vince Gibson. You got to coach on a run. You've got to say a few words and paint a Mona Lisa. Yep. You can't say a thousand words and pay and paint a hen scratching. They don't understand. It's, it's, it's gotta be, it's like when I want people getting a now it's a hip pinch. We call it a hang. Your butt goes back, right. your shoulders go forward and your weight goes towards your, your body weight goes towards your heel. That's it. Butt back. Weight towards your heels, shoulders go forward, keep your back straight. That's it. That's Simple. let the bar go down. You know, let, yep. if people, you've got to be able to coach on the run and you've got to understand what athletes you might uh, I'll give you an example. We had, this was late after the championship teams. And I think I was already in semi-retirement. And in the summer, when I went back and worked, we had a player there and he was doing Javorik's complex. Mm -hmm. And I said, now did you, what he was doing, he said, the most, you see what a great job he did. And the most important exercise was the final one, the bent over row. And they said, well, why is that? Because he's tired. Now I, I'm going to see how disciplined it is to do it correctly. And I saw the mm -hmm. athlete kind of, you know, you, I could see he was felt, made him feel good. And he was a right. type of athlete. He was a young man that had been involved in a serious altercation, um, mm -hmm. not necessarily of his own fault. And so when I would talk to him, I would just walk up and talk very calmly. Right. It wouldn't be like from the back of the room, hey, keep your back straight or something like unless it was, unless he was doing something really. And you got to find out what athletes are like that. And I don't think you always have to be yelling at them all the time. I, I you nope. know, in college strength coaches, and I think the language you use sets the tone. Uh, I don't think using the language that they may be common to them is the best mm -hmm. example. I think you should be setting an example. You want them to rise to the highest common denominator, not the lowest. Yep. And I think I only used one profanity in all the years I ever coached in professional sports. And a guy really? came up yeah, and a guy came up and apologized to me later. He said I was right. 
I, I went in the training room and the young man was trying to re, rehab. You're supposed to come out and do tempo. And I got a yay and a, you know, him and a hall. So I finally said, so I, I shouldn't have, but I did, but that's the only time in 22 years. Wow. Now, there was a point where you were pushed. Yeah. But yeah. And now I'm not in the competitive situation on the court. Mm-hmm. or on the field and train, you know, and practice and heated things. So that also explains it. But right. I just think I want, I just think that, and that's why I say I'm a high school coach. It was that personality. I was just coaching those, those grown men were to me the same Greg Blandino or Jimmy King or Jimmy Dillon or Danny Reed or Steve Rolova or, Joe Mullen or Steve Klein, the kids I coached in high school, or Chris Majors, or Jarrett Moore, they were the same kids like Randy Candelero. I was just coaching those same high school kids with the same way I would do it then. That, you know, I yeah. just never changed. And I think, I think if you really want to be a good coach, you should start in high school. I think the biggest mistake they all make is in college, starting there. Yep. And, yep. uh, you learned because now you deal with kids that have it and you deal with kids that really got to work with it. It makes you a better coach. And we didn't have all the technology. And and the one thing I don't like seeing is all this. You got to have a GPS. You got to have this. I got two eyes, two ears. I had a guy take a stopwatch at a 49er game, told me how long between the play was and how much, how long the play lasted. Simple. And, and it, which uh, when I was with the, at Murrow High School, we had Carl Miller in. I said, I called him. I said, Carl, we're going to do two reps every 25 seconds, like a play in football. He said, Al, that's called cluster training. It was in Perry Raiders magazine. They had, a, they had guys do a, a rep every minute. And he sent me his cluster training layout, how he did it. And that was 1978. And I remember a prominent PhD was talking about cluster training and I told him I'd done it then and I sent him Carl's program. Nothing's new. The only thing that's new, it what the only thing it's new to the people, it's because they haven't learned it yet. They haven't experienced yeah. it. There's nothing really new. I've got I've got pictures of, of people doing plyometrics in the 1800s, doing single like everything's everything's got to be done on a single leg now. Oh my God, if you don't single <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with single leg training. I like it, but it's right. not the end all end all. I'll give you an example. If you had two athletes, hundred kilos and they, and one could single leg squat his body weight, I'll use the Bulgarian, which I don't like because it, people don't realize when you elevate that leg, you've taken your pelvis that's going back and you've anterior rotated. Now, which is against natural rhythms yeah and when you go down that's already doesn't have any motion right and if you watch guys do that on the internet you'll see their backs either shift but they'll go into a lumbar mark come give the they'll give real big into extension i like single leg training i like what we call a step down start up on the box dragomir sherosian would do that and work up to where you you don't you don't you're up on a high enough box you can't touch the ground and come back out of it and that takes some time or i like the original mike boyle pistol squat on a box i like mm-hmm. i like lunges because 
It's not true single leg, but when you lunge, you must decelerate that weight going forward, which is how you plant. So, you know, there, I like single leg RDLs. But what I'm saying is if you had an athlete that had the equal weight, so if I can single leg squat my body weight, 100 kilos, and another 100 kilo athlete can do a double body weight and a bilateral, and you switch them, which athlete you think is going to adapt the quickest? Huh? The bilateral. Because right. 100 kilos is nothing. The other thing, all that single leg squat does not require the mobility through the ad adductors in the groin area and the hip joint. In other words, you don't have to have internal rotation as much when you're doing that straight, everything in line. When you spread those knees out and, and get deep, now you've got to have that. So I think all I think all those methods have their place. Now, at Moreau High School, we did no single leg training other than sprinting, which is the, is the optimum plyometric. People don't realize that. It's the shortest ground cunt. We ran slight downhill. So if we ran a 40-yard dash five flat, the optimum speed downhill was about 485, no more than 5%. Many years later, when I met Carmelo Bosco, that was what his study found. If you towed someone, no more than 5.5, otherwise you were stubborn. And we did plyometric, we did single leg hops. So I think all of it has its methods. All of it has its place. But here's the point. Don't, when you learn from someone, just don't go in there and bite the, the whole apple at once. Everybody, every, you can learn from everybody and contribute. But yeah. Don't become a clone of one person because no one yep. person has all the answers. And what I've done is tried to take the knowledge like George half and, uh, Oh God, the other guy over that wrote a nice book. Oh God, Robert Newton, <laughs> uh, you know, and all their knowledge. And, and I've just tried to get and put it in how, how it fit, but right. you've got to be very careful of becoming a, a, just a true disciple. Yeah. And, that's a huge interesting. Well, it's something that we talk to our guys a lot about um, with role modeling, right? Because you can you can learn a lot through role modeling. You totally can, but a role model without a purpose, it's, it's kind of capping your potential, right? Because think about it: if you don't know exactly what you're role modeling of this individual, or exactly what you're trying to replicate, and all of a sudden you try to become a second coming of this person. It's not going to work for you because their genetics are completely different. Their, their way of doing things are completely different. And you have your own uniques that you're creating, right? The best in the world would tell you the first thing that you don't want to be is them, right? Well, the other, the other thing person. is, yeah, you, you, you're you, you can't be yep. someone, you can't, you can't copy, you can't copy how I did it. I can't copy yep. how I learned a lot from my brother. He was a great, I, I was very, 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 very fortunate. And people asked me about success. And I said, I was in the right place at the right time. And that's the honest to God truth. Uh, I went to a high school, never won any games. So you, if you win, you're smart. I went to the 49ers that had Bill Walsh. That says it all. And then I go to the Chicago Bulls. That says it all. So if I don't make those three choices, you're not talking to me. But my mom and dad were great role models. My sister was, and my brother-in-law, and my and my brother Dick and his wife Carol. I lived with them for a year. My brother Stan. All of them at some place in my life played a huge, and I can't, and that's all capital letters and huge role in my life. And people say, well, everybody says that, but I can give you specifics. 
I can give you a time I was thinking about quitting college for a personal reason. And my brother Stan was in San Francisco and I was living with Dick and he drove to see me and Dick was, you know, trying to help me through this and his wife or uh, my brother-in-law and my sister would go all of my games. I would go lift weights in their garage and she, they'd feed my friends and they were always there. And, and also, and my brother, Dick, I mean, I, I played for him one year at Napa junior college, great coach, but the best football coach I ever played for. And that boy, well, he's your brother. No, he could, he made me play. You can't play better than you, who you are, but he got me to play at who I was. And I'll explain this. He never gave me much to do because he knew if I did, I'd screw it up. I called the defense. That was pretty simple. And he let me be me. And I went to college and the more game films I watched a lot of times affected me negatively because I would watch the other team's game film and I'd focus and I have a tendency to do this on one thing and it would screw up everything else I was trying to do in the game as a deep, as a linebacker. So all these people and my dad and mom, I've talked about already, but my mom fed all my friends. God, if uh, we were out playing, doing something, I mean, we, she, and I don't mean McDonald's, she would have chicken, cacciatore, veal, scallopini, homemade <laughs> pies, a great big good stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. She, she, well, my dad loved eating me. So all my friends were welcome. My dad welcome all my, and working for my dad. Now he, he right. was a great guy, but working for him, he was tough. He told me one time, right. you, you, if your brains were gunpowder, they wouldn't mess up your hair. Or another time he said, <laughs> you're so dumb. You couldn't pour, I'll clean this up. You couldn't pour urine out of the boot with directions on the heel. Well, people today would say that's child abuse. No, you made a mistake. You moron. Don't make it again. Do the other thing he said, what do we do the job the right the first time so you don't have to do it over next time, second time. Right. You know? So it, it was right. a different generation. And that permeated through all my family. My brother Dick one day was I got upset at practice playing for him and I was mad and he, he kicked me in the butt. I'll never forget it. Uh and then I got home that night. He called me up, talked to me about two seconds, and I was fine. He had a knack for seeing people's personality. And I'm sure he had he did the same in at at UCLA where he won the Rose Bowl and at the at the Eagles, at the Rams, and at the Chiefs. So I I I absorbed so much of all their personalities just by osmosis, not by a thought process. Right. And that's, 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 you know, I think that's the key. And I think the one thing in the American, when you see single parent families, that's creates a lot of problems for those children. They don't have role yeah. models in that house. Well, what we know, which is so important too, if we're talking about that, like why this really affects and so on, you know, people don't really look at when self-esteem is truly built for, for people. Right. We know that by the age of 10, it's usually the experiences have summed up to who this individual becomes and how they feel about themselves and the things they've seen. And, you know, I think people have kind of lost the respect of the art that there is a failing. Like there is an art of failure. There is. It's amazing. And I know it. I, I've, 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 I've experienced that a few times in my life. So I know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's like there's just so many little things that I think people don't realize. The big thing that I want to everyone to understand with this 
interview like process we've had with you, Al, is that, you know, you've worked with some of the most amazing teams in the world, amazing athletes and people, right? People in the world, not just talking about the Michael Jordan and so like you've been in the presence of some of the most amazing people in the world. And there's one thing that always this keeps coming back to know your roots and keep it simple, know your roots and keep it simple. And if you can do that and you can stay the course, you can accomplish a lot. Well, you so, just, yeah, you don't try to treat them any different. I didn't, I didn't train Michael, but I said, Hey, my MJ, how you doing? Or Mike, well, I didn't, I had a, a great nephew come back and he went back and told his mother, Al, Al just called him Michael. Well, what, you know, well, I wasn't going to treat him as the second coming. I got right. along or Joe Montana or the late Dwight Clark. What a great guy he was, uh, you know, or Randy Cross or Dwayne Board or Billy Ray. It didn't matter. Bill Walsh, you treat people as people. And I I just, I don't think there's enough emphasis in America. And I'll be very blunt. Mm -hmm. Not enough emphasis on family, the importance of it. I I cannot emphasize that enough. The other thing is, maybe to sum it up, if you want to be as good as you can be, whatever that is, and that's one false thing we're teaching people. Well, it, it well everybody gets equal opportunity, equal outcome. No, because we're not all have the same ability. If it was all equal outcome, then why don't we have more Michael Jordans in the world, or more Phil yeah. Mickelsons, or more Joe Montanas, or more Bill mm-hmm. Walshes, or whoever you want them, or, or more people like my brother. But if you yeah. want to be the best you can be. Remember this, you can fool everybody but the per- man in the mirror. You've got to be honest with that person. You've got to be able to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm not really being honest with you. I'm not doing what I should be doing. Because if you try to fool that person, you are doomed for failure. If you're not honest with that person, you've got no chance. You can't lie to the man in the mirror. Uh- absolutely true. Right. At the end of the day, there's an internal scoreboard that nobody sees. And that's the most important piece of advice I give to everybody. And and yours truly right here has looked in the mirror more than once and said, I don't like the direction you're going or what you're doing. You got to get back on course. All of us need someone, something or someone to direct us back on course, because sometimes we're driving down that highway and we cross the center line and we're going to have a head on collision. Mm-hmm. and you've got to absolutely. avoid that absolutely and it's not to say that sometimes you won't get on the wrong side of the road right that, it's gonna that's happen. why you look in the mirror bingo <laughs> see that so al first off this was an absolute pleasure there's just so much knowledge that people can not only take from this but i really really hope apply what we're going to do for everybody that's tuning into this we're going to actually turn this into a simple checklist um, that you can read through and, and understand it because there's so many principles from this of just keeping it simple and using your own true strength and your core values that you do have and you bring to the table because it's what shapes some of the best in the world, right? You heard it right here firsthand. So, well, the, the one I'll, thing I, I did mention yeah. if you're hiring people, make sure you don't hire someone to, to just to be a, a clone, a copy of you. When I hired Eric Kellen when he was really young, but we were both young. He was opposite me. He was calm, didn't get over excited about things where I'm a type A, something went wrong, I was upset, 
I, not to the players, but I was upset with something and it affected me. He was always a calm person that kept me in the right direction. And I think you need people like that. You don't want to hire. I wouldn't want to hire five people like me because I'd have had to fi fire all four of them because I'd have been mad at them because they, they were all going to be trying to take my job. So I think that's the thing. Be yourself and enjoy life because at 76, it goes by faster than you think. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. And he's still kicking. So, Al, the fact that you're uh, you're doing more than just you know, lazing around and still giving back. I think when we talked the other week, actually, you were saying you're in the midst of developing something still right now, right? Well, I'm, I'm thinking of doing some Zoom casts on a very limited basis, if that's what you were. And what I wanted to do, if I do it, would be not a presentation where I lecture them on periodization and all that, <laughs> would be a Zoom conference where 10 limited to 10 people where they would pick a moderator. They'd gather questions from all of them, send them to me. If I feel I can answer the questions, then we'd go to the next process and, and do the conference, but it'd be specific to their needs. There's no sense going really? to hear someone talk about, let's say you're, you're, a, let's say you're an unbelievable knowledge of Olympic weightlifting. Well, why do you want to go hear me talk about that? Each coach, right. each situation is different. So I would, I would, I'm trying to think, make it specific to what they want to know, not what I want to tell them, but what they want to gather from me. And if I looked at the questions and didn't feel I could do a good job, I tell them, that's the other thing coaches got to admit. Don't be afraid to admit to what you don't know. I know one, several of the Bulls players said, I, we would, we really liked you were willing to bring other people in and check your ego at the door and make changes. One time I had Charlie Francis in there working and, and Charles Pollockin came in and we had a young man doing push jerks or push press one of the two. And he was dropping his elbows at the start. And I didn't notice that in his chest. And Charles made that point. I didn't got to say thanks to the problem. When you're a coach, you start looking at things. You don't see it. Here's another, your best guy at doing anything, anything may not be doing it absolutely correct, but your best guy becomes, or best gal becomes your model. Now someone else comes in and you see, oh man, that's what it should look like. Mm -hmm. And you have to put your ego in the door and say, I made a mistake. I didn't know, or I wasn't doing it right. That's and I I don't know about corporate America, but I'm sure they got big egos like coaches, and I Absolutely. bet the hardest thing for the guy that's ahead of corporate whatever is to admit they made a mistake, and yep. then to be man enough to recognize it and admit it. And you until you admit your mistakes, you can't get any better. Just remember that until you admit and recognize your mistakes or what you don't know. You can't get better. It's what you think you know, but you don't know that's going to lead you down to a bunch of trouble. Yeah. Teach what you know and learn what you don't. Massive. Ladies and gentlemen, Al Vermeil, thank you so much, Al, for your time. Well, I rambled um, on and, you know, and I interrupted you like my wife says I always do. But 
you know, that's, you know, we've been married 53 years and that's an experience within itself. And she keeps, <laughs> she keeps me very humble. You know, I'll go places and people will be so complimentary and she has a, a very quick knack to making me realize that I'm not that person always that they think I am. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it. Wow. This is awesome. Everyone that tuned in, um, we'll keep you posted with just some simple moves that Al's making and so on to keep in touch with him. If you'd want to find a way to kind of follow along what he's done, give him some resources or use some resources that he's completed. And um, Al, it's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Matt.